What's up? It's episode 81, Pain Points of Wealth, and we have a very special episode today. We have Mr. Charles Payne from Fox Business on our show. It's a great in-depth interview. Charles talks about his life philosophy. He talks about his journey to success, the state of Wall Street today. It's a really in-depth interview, gets really deep, and we're going to talk about all the volatility in the market. We've got a recession potentially on the horizon now, negative GDP growth in the first quarter, earnings coming in strong. What does it all mean? We're going to give you our viewpoint on the stock market, the economy, give you a real clear view. We got to get to it. We got a great show today. Hit the music. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod. Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. All right, well, we have a very special guest on the show today, the host of Making Money on Fox Business and literally probably the best dressed man on TV and the best last name, Mr. Charles Payne. Charles Payne, thank you for being on our show today. It's a real honor and a pleasure. Uh, It's great to have you here, man. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Well, you know, Chris, he's already announced this podcast as four pains in the pod. It's usually only three, Charles. But I tell you, all my friends and my clients, they respect the living daylights out of you. They're always asking, what's Charles like? You know, I see him on Fox Business all the time. What's he all about? And I did a little bit of homework. And, you know, I started in the industry about 10 years earlier than you did. I had no idea I'd end up in this industry, Charles. All I knew is I wanted to be successful. And quite frankly, when I got out of college in 75, it's the only job I could get. So, you know, that's how I got to the Street of Dreams. How'd you get there? Well, I wanted to be in this industry because the way I grew up, I had two childhoods. So my first childhood was amazing. My father was in the army and, uh, you know, we lived on these military bases all over the world. I was born in New York. My brother, next brother was born in Pittsburgh. The next one was born in Texas. We moved to Germany, back to Pittsburgh, Japan, back to Texas, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia. So, you know, we moved every year and it was always beautiful. It was always amazing. It was like an oasis. To be quite frank with you, it was sort of a facade, not a facade in the sense that it wasn't fake, but it wasn't a reflection of what America was. It really wasn't. And and that, it's mostly good, but there's obviously, you know, you turn out to be somewhat naive. But I came home from school one day when we were in, uh, living in Fort Lee, Virginia, two-story house, big yard. Everything was fantastic. And my mom said, we're leaving. So it was me, my mom, and my two younger brothers, and we left. You know, they had, my parents had problems, you know, for a while. And we all got on a bus and we had no money. So we went from this beautiful two-story house on an army base where we never locked our doors, played all day, come in the house, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, go back out, play all day, to Harlem. At the time, you know, the poorest, most dangerous neighborhood in America, period. And uh, so it was really, really amazing. I mean, there were some amazing, beautiful things. The energy, the vitality, I'd never seen anything like that. Just, I remember the first time we came out the train station, we walked down the hill to the block, and we're walking down a block, and the music, you know, from boom boxes, from windows, from cars, a double dutch. I never saw girls double dutch. What the hell is that double dutch? You know, the buildings, it was just so amazing. They dressed the way people were dressed, and that part was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. But I also never known poverty like that. And so, and despair and violence. So it was the ultimate culture shock. And all four of us lived in a room inside of an apartment. And after a few months, we had enough to get our own apartment. 
but that first winter we didn't have heat or hot water. So I was the oldest and I just took it upon myself to do something to help my mom. Initially, I would take like paper towels and Windex and clean windows or stoplights, red lights, got a job in a bodega. But then I just said to myself, I got to make money. You know, I got to figure this out. And the irony is I never thought about money one single day of my life at all. I never even thought about money. So I said, money, Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> we all equate money with Wall Street, you know? So I started picking up the Wall Street Journal whenever I could. And Bob, you know, it was back in the day. It was like just nothing but lines and lines and lines and numbers. And what the hell is this thing? I didn't even know if I was reading upside down the first time. Like, it was just crazy, like hieroglyphics. I needed a Rosetta Stone. Like, so after a few months, I started to kind of, okay, now, okay, okay. So things kind of started clicking. And, you know, when I was 14, I told my mom, I'm going to work on Wall Street. I bought my first mutual fund when I was 17. She had to co-sign on my first stock at 18. How about that? You know, my first day at Merrill Lynch, I got a hold of a Wall Street Journal. And first, I looked for the comics. There weren't any. And then I looked for the sports page. And I... The rest of it didn't make any sense. Yeah, it was just crazy. So that was how I became interested in the stock market. And that's when I just knew I was going to work down on Wall Street. I told my mom and I went to the Air Force when I signed up when I was 17 to go to college. And also, my father being a career military guy, you know, he always told me I had to serve no matter what I had to do at least four years. And even though we weren't living with him, it was just something that was sort of ingrained in me. So I did four years in the Air Force and then I got out. It was so weird because history repeated itself. I was married. I had a daughter under one years old. She was only a few months old. I had a thousand bucks in my pocket, which was a lot of money back then. I saved it up because I only took one vacation my whole time in the Air Force. And we, all three of us, lived inside of a room inside of a building in Harlem. So history repeated itself and started all over. Well, Charles, I actually did some research on you. I think at one point you were stationed out in, was it Minot, North Dakota? Why not Minot? Freezes the reason. Yeah like the Harlem of the West. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I knew I was in trouble when I got to Minot, right? Because I got there late spring. So it was nothing, right? It was, first of all, we flew over and it was like nothing but dirt, right? What the hell is this? But then you go and you go and you start, they give you your clothes and stuff, right? So they start pulling out all these crazy ass clothes, like these big ass coats and things like that. I hope I, the, you guys got a monitor. I know pain's usually cursed universally, but. Like our family reunions, Charles. You be like that. Yeah, yeah. So then they gave me these funky looking boots, right? I'm like, what kind of boots are those? Those aren't the boots. Those are the socks. They were so thick and so big. They stood up by themselves. Like, so I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble. So those are the socks? Yeah, we'll bring out the boots in a minute, you know, on a wheelbarrow. But yeah, mine out in North Dakota. It was fun, you know? I guess because of the way I grew up, I do have the ability to make friends quickly. And I lived with every kind of person. You know, when we lived in Japan, I used to leave the base. I had uh, friends and... Japanese friends, and they would teach me some Japanese, and I would talk and you know teach them some English, and so I lived everywhere and, and with every kind of person. So I was able to have fun everywhere I went, but it was a little bit more challenging in Minot, North Dakota. Well, how did you make the transition? Because obviously you went from the military, you had your mind on Wall Street, no connections, I'm assuming, to go down to Wall Street and somehow get your way into some sort of job. I think you know you started as a broker, if my recollection is correct. Like, how did you make that transition? Yeah, I went out, I went down there. They had these agencies, a couple of employment agencies in the Wall Street area. I went there and they were like, uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, I got an interview with uh, EF Hutton, which was a big firm at the time, maybe a top five, top six firm at the time. And the guy just liked me. So he just said, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. But he told me before I went in for that second interview, I wasn't 100% sure I got the job. So 
when I got home that later on that night and the phone rang and I got it and I got the job, I got to tell you, it was one of, it still might be in the top 10 happiest days of my life. And I'm talking, I was making 13 grand a year. I mean, I was thrilled over the moon. It was an analytical job going, you know, analytical stuff, going over trades and things like that. And I guess the best part of it is I was around all of these very successful people who were managing a lot of money. And I would always ask questions and, you know, they people just, oh, come here, kid. Let me show you how it works. You know, this is what we call the money supply or whatever, you know. So it was kind of cool in that respect that I was able to talk to these folks and, and learn a lot. But again, I wasn't making that much money. You know, I always tell people, if you went down like the organizational chart, you'd have to go all the way down to the bottom and then flip it over. <laughs> it was like mailroom, then Charles Bean over here. Right. But it was great. I was learning things. And then I ran into an old friend who worked at the, uh, one of these small boutique firms. And I said, I always wanted to be a broker. They said, well, come talk to them. So I went over. They said, okay, we'll give you a shot, but you got to pass the test on your own. And if you pass the test, then we'll train you. So it was like, uh-oh, okay. Because I was working at EF Hutton, but I also had a second job doing microfiche. You know, we would take documents and make pictures of it. So that was my second job. And I never forget, the same guy said, you know, well, and I had another buddy at EF Hutton who was going to take the test, and he was taking a course. And I wasn't taking a course. I just had some study material. But he said, come with me. He's like, yeah, come with me to my class. So it was a Wednesday. Back then, the test was on Saturdays only. I don't know if that's still the case. So I went with him. The instructor was really nice. He said, yeah, come on in, sit in with us. Took some sample tests. I was getting like 70s, 68, 72s. A guy looked at it and said, listen, the test is Saturday. There's no way you could pass it, but you should take our course. And as he was talking to me, I'm looking at him in the back of my mind like, my man, you do not know me. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't going to pass. I said, you don't know me, my man. I'm just looking at him. I was not. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the back of my mind, is like, yeah, I hear you. So I called in sick the next two days and went to my mom's place because, you know, she had a big kitchen table and just put everything out there, just worked, studied, read, studied, put it all together. Six hour test. I finished in less than four hours. Only one person finished before me and I knew I passed. So I, that's when I became a broker. But back in those days, you know, you're like, OK, congratulations. Here's the phone. Good luck. <laughs> that's how Bob got his start. Yeah. Start with the A's. Yeah. Well, you know what helped me out? Two things helped me out. I had to go in the back and get these old phone books that everybody went through already, which is like tough. Two things helped me out a lot. First, I would call the hard names, like, you know, a lot of with cues in them, like no one could pronounce. Like, even to this day, I can't pronounce names, but I'll give it a good shot because people skip those names. You know, if it was Paul Smith, they call him. But if it's like one of these crazy names, like, you know, like, uh, never mind. I would call those names. That kind of helped me out a little bit. But the best call I had was like within the first week of doing it. And it really just was a godsend. I read the script to the guy. And after I read the script, he said, you read very well, but what do you want? Wow. It was like an epiphany. That's a wake up call. Yeah, I said, oh, wow. So I talked to him, he opened the account. I hung up the phone and tore up the script. And from that moment on, all I did was have regular phone call conversations with people. That's cool. It seems like the one theme here, Charles, is just your exceptional people skills. You know, we were to get a job on Wall Street, like you said, just being able to grow up around the world. And I know even going on set with you and talking to you when the camera's off, it's just like, yeah, it's like I've known you for like 100 years. <laughs> it's like you've got that ability. It's cool. It's really cool. It really is, man. It is a blessing. There's no doubt about it. I remember one time I went for a job, and this is after I graduated, but I had like four or five months of the delay going into the military. And like my neighborhood was, you didn't want to hang out like it. You just, you're going to get in trouble. Something's going to go wrong. I said, I got to find a job. So there was an ad for a new McDonald's. It was, ironically, it was only a couple blocks from Trump's first major building in the New York, Hyatt, the Hyatt Hotel. 
So I went down for this job, and there was three openings, and there were about 300 people. It was really crazy. I mean, again, this is like 79.80. This, it was so bad. So I went in, and they interviewed everyone. And then they said, okay, they cut it in half, and they said, okay, we'll have the second round of interviews. So, you know, I went over and, and I started asking one of the managers, are they going to call out our names or something? He said, don't worry, you're already hired. You can just go sit over there. So I had to sit over there for like hours to wait for them to go finish the process. So whatever I said, whatever I did, it clicked. So, and I, you know, it helped me out a lot. Well, this is something Ryan and I talk a lot about. I mean, having the ability to be highly emotionally intelligent in this business, I think is more important than anything. You know, the ability to relate to people and just engage people and get people on your level. I think it makes a huge difference. And it sounds like that's really benefited you in your career. It has. In fact, I think, you know, a lot of talk about IQ is, you know, I think there's too much on IQ and not enough on EQ these days, especially in finance and general and people coming into the labor force. You see it a lot. I was looking, I guess, this week, maybe it was the Dallas Fed, one of the Fed manufacturing reports this week. I know I was looking at Dallas. There's a lot of good stuff in that Dallas Fed report this week. But, you know, they have one line and they call it soft skills. But it's really not soft skills per se. That's just a cute name for it. It's really EQ and the ability to get along with other people, the ability to take criticism. This is something that really is really struggling with, I think, in society in general. And it's hard, I think, for a lot of employers in almost every industry. It's, I don't know what it is. You know, it's, there's a certain kind of weird attitude. And Bob would tell you, like, back in the day, you know, you just expect it, like, to get kicked in the butt, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Now I've got a nephew who's in the Marines and he just visited us this weekend and he was doing some training. He was training some new recruits. They were training them, but he, he was doing that for a while. But even in the Marines, the things you can't do any, I mean, it's like, you gotta be tough because war is tough. <laughs> They're not gonna coddle you in war. Like, you know, but even with the Marines have been, they've beaten them down to the point where they can't, you know, I just think we're unprepared for the emotional strains that are inevitable that come with life. Yeah, you know, Charles, I get clients who call me all the time and their children, their grandchildren want to know, what should they study if they want to become into your business? They want to join your business, Bob. What course should they take in college? And I always tell them the best course I ever took was abnormal psychology. It's helped me more than anything else. But I'm sure you get the same questions. I mean, what would you tell people to study today if they want to have a career on Wall Street? Yeah, I think you got to know, obviously, you know, any kind of math, I think it's just, it never changes, right? And it's, you need it for everything. You need it for wherever we're going in this world. Even if you don't want to be on Wall Street, you can take it to Silicon Valley. You can take it, become an entrepreneur with it. So I think you got to have really some very, very strong math skills. Believe it or not, I think history is important as well. How often do we talk about support levels, resistance? I mean, we're talking about the past. Often it's near term, but even we reflect to, well, it hasn't been this way since 1978. Well, we go back and start to see what happened next. And then if you really want to know, then you got to look at what's happening beyond those numbers, right? What was happening in the country? What was happening with society? What was happening with societies across the board? But I think the most important thing is, it's not even a course per se, but I think you got to have a, be very inquisitive. People aren't really inquisitive anymore. And I think anytime you're really very inquisitive where you have an idea or a question, and then you find the answer, but the answer gives you another question, that's, you're going to succeed, whatever you do. That's beautifully said. Yeah. I agree with you, Charles. I think there's really no institutional memory when it comes to investing. I mean, you see, like we've been around a long time, so we've seen a lot of what's happened before. And it's always amazing to me how naive investors can be about the risk that they're taking. And they don't see that risk. Of course, risk is something, you know, we recognize in hindsight. I think that's why your show on TV is so valuable. You do a lot of educating, you give perspective. 
my clients say all the time, they say, why can't they have more people like Charles Payne on television? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's my goal. It really is my goal. And I try to do it in a way where I'm not going to, because we're getting back to EQ and sensitivity. You know, I don't think we have to insult the audience. I feel like there's a lot of that going on in financial TV. Like, you know, these people are dumb or whatever. It's like, you're not going to get them to sit down and listen to you if you always put them down. And by the way, none of us have all the answers, right? So I'm looking at GE stock. I'm looking at uh, AT&T. I'm looking at a lot of these stocks that the brilliant folks on Wall Street told their parents to put all their money in 20 years ago that couldn't miss the blue chips, right? So you can see why they're a little hesitant to follow you hook, line, and sinker. But there is, it's every day. I put so much effort into this. I don't know, and I can't speak for other people, but the effort that I put in, what I send out to my team every day will blow your mind. It's like 20 to 30 pages. You know, often like today, I, I make my own tables for, I'm asking what is value? What is value, right? Because that's another thing I hate with financial TV, the catchphrases. Last year, it was the barbell approach. Throw me crazy. What the? <laughs> We're constructive on this stock. Just say you want to buy it. Stop that. Yeah. The last month has been quality. Well, we're buying quality. What the hell is a quality stock? I don't know what that is. One that's not shitty, Charles. One that's not shitty. We all know that. So value. Value is the fun thing now too, right? Everyone's in value. But what is value? So I made a great chart for today. And I've got on one side your traditional value stocks and their PE ratio. Clorox is at 74. And your non-value stocks, right? Like Facebook with a PE ratio of 13. Now, which one is the value at these levels? Yeah. How did Facebook become 13, by the way, overnight? Like, I just couldn't believe that. It was like, all of a sudden, you're right. It's like, it's the cheapest stock out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to buck that trend, you know, that sort of everyone in the echo chamber saying the same thing over and over again. It's very frustrating for me because I don't think they're helping the audience. And that's always been the most frustrating thing for me, Charles, is like, the hardest thing is to get people to trust you. And because of our industry and all the history of the Wall Street, it's hard. you can't blame people for not trusting you, right? It's something that's earned, something that you earn trust over time. And it's, I don't know how many times I felt like screaming into the screen or the TV, like, hey, I'm trustworthy. You know, it's me. But we have to overcome all that. And it's just, you know, it takes time, it takes effort. And I think Chris always talks about the real key is just be a great listener. Oh, my goodness. Chris, that's like the mantra of my life. That's what I tell everybody. You have to be a great, great listener in everything. You know, when I was a broker and even with my own company, you know, it's like I tell my guys, if you just listen and just pay attention, take some notes, people will give you the roadmap. They'll tell you everything you need to know, but it's a lost art. I wanted to pick up also, Bob, on that trustworthiness. Uh, yesterday, I had to slip in some, a little bit on that Bill Wong story because my gut tells me it's going to get uglier. You know, some of the names that are floating around in these firms, but it also relates to individual investors in the sense that here's a guy who was able to lose $20 billion in two days of his own money, $10 billion of Wall Street's money or whatever, his backers' money. And people wonder, like, how do these folks get this kind of money? And it feels like the deck is stacked against them. And that's an impediment, a huge impediment to getting people into the stock market. So I had to slip that in there to be, I think, if I didn't get that in my show yesterday, it wouldn't have been a good look, you know, because I think it's authentic in a sense that, that's what's on the viewer's mind. You know, it always drives me crazy, Charles, because as you go through history, you look at all the scam artists, you look at the Ponzi schemes, you look at the evil people that enter industry. They work so hard at doing it wrong. If they just took one-tenth of the energy and did it right, they'd be enormously successful. I just wonder what's wrong with these people. And it's just unfortunately it makes it harder for all the people who try to do it right and do it right. 
And it's, uh, to me, it's just amazing that year in, year out, we see one scam after another that people never learn. And that's why you got to stay on TV to keep your message going. You know, it's so funny. I also apply that to just people in general. You know, I've got a friend. He went to prison for 20 years. He had a big drug ring, a big drug ring. I remember when he initially was going through it, him and his family rented this big RV and traveled across the country, came back. He got out of prison. He came to visit me. Smart dude. I mean, really a brilliant guy. And then, you know, a few months later, I was driving, taking a local route home, and I saw him, and I pulled over. He had like seven cell phones. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's up, Richie? What are you doing, man? He's like, yo. He got back into the game, and he got busted again. But there's also other elements to it, right? He, Richie doesn't believe that anybody would give him a shot to do it legitimately. And that's something as a society, we got to make people believe somehow, if you've got those skills, that there's a place or somehow you can get access again that bill wong won't get to 20 billion a blow that maybe they'll break off a piece of that and give you a shot somewhere right exactly and he looked at that guy jason belfort the wolf of wall street right he's banned from wall street but now he's holding crypto seminars down in miami and people are paying him i mean it's just forty thousand bucks today by the way did you see the uh, video when he was dissing it not long ago yeah 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 by the way, there's a lot of people like that in our business, right? All of a sudden, they're a crypto expert. I'm like, what the hell? What the? Well, I know a lot of guys like that that were actually banned through FINRA. They had their license uh, taken away, and now they're all crypto experts. And you just got to go up online, you Google them, and they have basically been barred from the industry. It's incredible. Meanwhile, we're sitting on the greatest wealth creator in the history of the planet, the U.S. stock market. And all these scam artists prevent people from achieving their dreams because they want to take a shortcut. It is crazy, you know, so I'll try my best to keep preaching to the masses. And I won't BS them, listen, there's some funky stuff going on, but you got to get in anyway. I'll tell you what, Charles, all my clients watch you, all my friends watch you. And now I know why. You want the EF Hutton. When Charles Payne talks, everybody listens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to switch gears for a second here, Charles, just, you know, we're a financial planning firm, wealth management. I'm just curious, and I find this very common, but like, look, You've seen everything, right? You've gone from poverty to massive success. And I wonder, do you ever feel really financially secure? Or in the back of your mind, you're always like, I got to get up. I got to hustle. I got to figure out my next move. Like at your stage of the game, what's your view on financial security? Well, I don't. I never feel 100% financial security. And I guess because I've taken enough highs and lows. And it also kind of goes back to the way I grew up as well. For most of my life, I never even made major purchases unless I could do it 100% cash. Doesn't mean I always have, you know, like uh, we bought a new house last year. I put 25% down because I wanted to stay, keep the rest of the cash, most of it in the market. Yeah. 3% interest rates make sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like the rates were so low. I want to, you know, I could, it was no big deal, but midway through the year, I bought my daughter a house and I just paid for the whole house. Don't get any ideas, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my last name is Payne too, Charles. I'd love a house in the suburbs, you know? Yeah, it was. You want to talk about a quick aside? Uh, I know this is, isn't the question, but those are the blessings of life. You know, I bought my mom a house and I bought my daughter a house. You know, my mom passed away a few years ago, but she grew up in Alabama. And the town that she grew up in, blacks weren't allowed on a certain side of that town. And the house that she, I bought her was the mayor's house. So not only is she on that side of town, but she's got the best house there. She had the best house there. So. Yeah, I never feel financially secure. I also never feel like an expert per se. In other words, I'm always a student. I'm a student of this market. I'm a student of this business. I'm a student of life. I've seen so many of these people that know every damn thing. It's always the market that's wrong, that just implode or kill other people. You know, maybe Kathy Wood is a prime example of that in real time right now. 
just knows every damn thing. And like, she won't come on your show. <laughs> yeah, won't come on my damn show. Yeah, she's afraid. Damn. So also though, the part, and I think you guys may also share this is it's a job where if we do it right, we're helping people. So that feels good. And we're competing, which I'm a competitive person. So to go out there and kind of compete, that feels good. But yeah, I don't know what level I would have to get to to ever say I'm just going to put my feet up, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking to a guy with a $100,000 watch on, right? I'm not there yet. Those goalposts keep moving, don't they, Charles? They keep moving, man. They keep moving. Now i got grandkids. What can I tell you? Well, you know, it's just kind of amazing. Like, you know, you see like people that actually go into retirement and go fully retired and do nothing. You know, it's just amazing what happens. They, you know, atrophy so quickly versus people like you who just continue to like, like my dad said, continue to move the goalposts and keep working hard and keep pushing for something because we're not meant to sit around. It happened to one of my best friends last year. He passed away two months after he retired. And I, we talked. I said, what are you going to do, Jackie? He said, uh, he said, I just want to go fishing every day. I was like, okay. I mean, I don't know what, if that, how that might have contributed to it, but I've seen that happen so many times to your point, Chris, that, you know, and I think, and that's the other blessing. You know, I've had so many people in my lifetime say, actually tell me that they felt sorry for me because I work so much. And like, man, I feel sorry for you. You work so much and they don't get it. Like if I wasn't doing this and getting paid for it, it would be my hobby. So we're blessed. If you love this and you do it every day, how much of a blessing is that? Yeah, but you're also a truth seeker, Charles. You're like you're looking for the truth and you're always researching. You're always looking. You're challenged by the market as I am. We're always thinking about it because it's you're never going to conquer it, right? It's something that we can always learn more every day. And I think that's the key to you. You're a truth seeker and you're always out there searching for the truth. I am. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I think we could probably just 30 minutes on the dot. That was like, God damn, Charles. All right. Yeah. Poetic, man. When's the whole family coming in? We're ready, Charles. I think we should do a whole family one. Yes. Will you all come in? Can we get all three in the studio? Bob's in that town next week. I'm in New York next week. We got to do it maybe in two weeks. We're moving to a new studio. This one has restrictions. I think the new studio that we can do all three, we can have a big paying family reunion. That would be so ridiculous. All right, I'm going to let the team know right now. All right. All right. Thanks, Charles. See you later. Thanks a lot. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 81, Pain Points of Wealth. Bob, Chris, and I now have a collective 75 years helping individuals just like you with your planning and investing. This is literally what we do every single day. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. But if you have over $750,000 saved for your financial independence plan, and you want a more hands-on approach, every week we run a total financial master plan at no cost. If you qualify, we'll go through every investment you own. We'll build you your own personalized financial portal to give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial picture, and we'll hone in on every financial issue that you have. No other firm out there is willing to do this work up front. We'll go through every investment you own. We'll look at all the fees you're paying. Wall Street loves to sell you investment with fees. We'll show you how to reduce those costs, optimize your portfolio for taxes, put together a full savings and income plan, show you how to optimize your income for retirement, for your financial independence plan, and look at diversification. Have you been feeling like your portfolio is getting destroyed with all this volatility right now? Or have you been sitting with way too much money in cash, earning nothing, trying to figure out what to do? Paralysis by analysis, we'll put together a full investment game plan, show you how to grow your money, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. We have only a few slots we do every week. Go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. That's www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. 
Hey, guys, what another interesting week. Lots of volatility. It seems like we're back to where we were in January, right? We had an all-time record high first week of January, and then we had a big correction. Rallied back up. Now we're back down to where we were correct. It seems like we're standing still. But meanwhile, lots of economic numbers coming in. We just had a very negative GDP down 1.4%. I say negative when you see it in the context of what the last quarter was, which was up 6.9%. Meanwhile, earnings are good. Unemployment numbers are dropping. Margins are improving. What's the story here, guys? I just think we're going nowhere fast, right? To your point, there's been tons of volatility. But if you look at the market over the last, let's call it like 10 months, Unless you're talking about like growth or disruptive technology, the market's pretty much been sideways. You know, I wrote last week, the hawks are getting more hawkish because the Fed's tightening financial conditions and the bears are getting more bearish. You know, sentiment's getting way more negative. And we just love those animals on Wall Street. I don't know why, but that's just the way it is here on the Street of Dreams. That's because Wall Street's a zoo, right? <laughs> wow, Bob, clever. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, it certainly had an impact on our clients. The outgoing calls and the incoming calls these last couple of days have been nonstops. I mean, I don't think I've been off the phone for more than 10 minutes just trying to calm people down, let them know that what they're doing is still viable. But the news has got people shaken up. The markets have got people shaken up. And I'll tell you what, it's making everybody nervous. Well, I'll tell you what, Chris. I mean, nervous is good because that creates opportunities. And But you know, if you've been listening to our podcast, this is what, 81? We've been saying over 81 podcasts that inflation was going to climb, that the big impact was going to be on long duration assets. So we told everyone, get out of long-term bonds, get out of bond funds, and especially get out of those disruptive technology stocks. You know, this Kathy Woods, I'm not sure who she is. They kept telling me she's the new Warren Buffett, but I don't think so. Her fund is down 65% from the high. And we've been warning people, don't invest in companies that are going to have earnings 20 years from now. Wait till they have earnings, then invest in them. Well, that she could be the new Warren Buffett if it meant that Warren Buffett lost money. Well, you know, he did lose money in this quarter because everybody did. Losing money is relative. You know, we're high, lower now than we were in January. And the only way you can actually take a loss is to take action and sell. The idea is to be an investor is to roll with the punches. And there's been a lot of opportunity in this market. So you're seeing growth stocks go down, value stocks go up. Believe it or not, guys, last week, our large company value portfolio hit a new high. Not a new high for the year, not a new high for the last 52 weeks. How about an all-time record high followed by mid-cap value? Meanwhile, they also hit an all-time record high, and we had our pipelines and our commodity portfolio hit a 52-week high. So it's not all negative. No, it's not all negative, and I think that's where it gets confusing because all the volatility and because one part of the market, right, this disruptive growth has just taken it on the chin. I mean, as we're recording this, Teladoc, which was just like the golden child of the lockdown, right? That was just like, this is the future the stock went up and up and up. And one day, it's down over 40%. And that's just a reminder that, man, oh, man, when things go down and things get ugly, it gets real, real quick. Nice pun on words there, boys. But, you know, so I think that's what you have to think about. You know, the stock market is no joke. And I think that's what you saw a lot of this gambling aspect to it and people speculating over the last two years. It's just a harsh reminder when the market turns against you, it turns fast. And, you know, as you talk about diversification, Bob, to your point, because we have commodities in our portfolio, because we have a lot of energy positions in our portfolio and old school value stocks, it's a great offset when other parts of the market aren't working. You know, you got to spread the money out. And this is like the proofs in the pudding. Right now is a perfect example of that. Well, that's the whole thing. You know, diversification is not about outperformance. Right? It's about keeping you in so you can achieve your financial goals. Let's face it, guys. If someone told us exactly what was going to be the best performing asset class in the year, in the month, in the universe, 
Why would you put your money anywhere else? But anybody tells you they know what's going to happen, that's not somebody you should walk away from. That's somebody you should run away from. Well, and I think, too, when you get past all the noise right now, because there is a lot of noise, and this is what we've kind of been honing in on every single week is, okay, prices are higher, we know, inflation's up, we know, but I just think it's been remarkable the way the consumer continues to spend. And I look at like uh, LVHM, it's the big French conglomerate, you know, they have Dior, Louis Vuitton, you know, Chris loves his Louis Vuitton bag, you know, he doesn't go anywhere without it. Not as much as you like your Hennessy, right? And my Hennessy, that's right. Before the podcast, I'm always drinking my Hennessy. But you know, the point is, is last quarter, we had record high, 40-year high in inflation. Their sales in the US, this is high in luxury goods, were up 27%. Means Americans were spending big time last quarter, even with high inflation. Well, that's the thing. We've had close to 140 companies report their earnings. Earnings on average are up 7.2% for the quarter. Revenues are up 11.6%. Now, this is historical data, right? This is in the books, right? Just like this GDP number, inflation, what happened in the last quarter, that's all history. Doesn't mean it has any predictive power. But let's face it, the market and the companies out there have had a lot thrown at them, and they're still able to show positive returns. That's why stocks are a hedge against inflation, guys. Well, Dad, you know, I agree. I think the stock market is definitely a viable thing, and we wouldn't be investing in it if it wasn't. But I'll tell you what, our clients don't feel that way. And as a matter of fact, I spoke with a client of mine the other day, and you know, whenever he calls, I feel like the market's hit a bottom because he always wants to sell out at the worst possible time. And I've gotten like five calls like that. So what you're saying is definitely true, but it's definitely creating a lot of fear with our client base at this point. So Chris, you know what? We need our clients to panic because, you know, most of our clients are smart. They follow a strategy. They understand we invest based on their goals, but everybody's emotional. And unless we get the emotions to the point where people are panicking, where investors are selling for no other reason than I can't take it anymore. We don't usually get a short-term bottom. So these are kind of major indicators for us. But truth be told, most investors over their lifetime put more money in when the market's at a record high, and they take more money out when the market's at a correction. Well, I always thought the adage was buy low, sell high. It sounds like the adage in their case is buy high, sell low, which that doesn't sound like a recipe for making money. Well, in all fairness, I mean, Wall Street perpetuates this, right? I mean, you know, a good example of this is Netflix. Netflix was the other golden child for, I don't know how many years, Netflix is like the greatest stock. Every analyst on Wall Street had a buy rating on it. And literally, we know over the last couple of weeks, the stock has just dropped precipitously, right? It's down over like 60% from its high. And it took for the stock to go down 60% before the analysts took away their buy rating. Like, what good is that? <laughs> you know, it's like, wait, wait, we just want to make sure, wait till the stock is all the way down, then we'll tell you to sell. And then, you know, when the stock is going way, way up, like Tesla is another example of this, the buy ratings on Tesla didn't come till the stock was already up exponentially. So, you know, Wall Street's like the worst when it comes to their advice, and especially these strategists and these analysts. Like, my God, if they didn't have a bad opinion, they don't have an opinion at all. Hey, Ryan, Chris, it's not their fault. You know, we're all ordinary, normal human beings. And unfortunately for the economist and the analyst and the strategists on Wall Street, they're just ordinary people telling us they can do extraordinary things. But what we find out with hindsight is they don't have any gifted insight like anybody else. The thing is, the markets are volatile. You know, you're going to go with the herd because we all read the same things. We listen to the same things. I can't tell you how many times I heard, well, my buddy thinks. Well, you know, does your buddy have any financial degrees? I mean, the whole idea is you've got to invest based on your goals. And volatility is the way to create opportunity, which is where you create return. Remember, our best returns come when we buy in down markets, not in up markets. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 81, Pain Points of Wealth. If you like our content, 
you lust over our content, give us a like, give us a five-star rating if it's on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify. If you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, click the like button, click the subscribe button, click the notification bell so you can be updated every week of all our new shows. And please, if you like our content, give us the love. Your support helps us to continue to do this podcast. Thank you for your support. All right, gentlemen, it's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, Bob, computer-driven trading accounts for 65 to 70% of daily equity activity. Unlike the old days when caffeine-powered traders debated what to buy embarked orders across trading floors, today rows of computers scrub headlines and silently trigger buy and sell programs in the shadows. Yeah, it's uh, sad but true, right? You know, the day traders, uh, the traders on the floor have been replaced by computers. And a lot of these big moves that we're seeing in the market are driven by algorithms, right? They just read headlines and they see a certain word they don't like, like recession or negative numbers. All of a sudden, they just they hit the sell button. And the problem is when you have that type of selling going on, selling begets selling. And you know, it's amazing how these things go directly in one direction, really hard, really strong, and the next day reverse direction because it's not being driven by humans, it's being driven by computer algorithms. The old algos are driving the markets today. There you go. The new algos, I guess, really. Chris, more than 4.3 billion people spend about four hours a day on mobile devices, up from about only 100 million people with negligible usage only 20 years ago. We've become more and more obsessed with our phones. Well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that stat because 20 years ago, it took about four hours for you to download an email on your mobile device because the network was so slow. It was probably better for all of us, though, I think. I think we were better when we weren't so hooked to our screens. It was a simpler time, right? I think they should bring back the rotary phone personally. You know what, Chris? Actually, I like it where they just put that like cup up to their ear with the string. Anyway, I digress. Bob, Russia's economy is smaller than New York's and technologically way more backwards. I've gotten so many calls this week and last week about, Bob, make sure in our diversified portfolio, we don't own any Russian stocks. Well, you know, there aren't any Russian stocks. I mean, <laughs> the stocks were like 3% of the emerging markets index. Now they're less than 1% if they're even trading because it turns out Russian's economy is tiny. It's actually smaller than New York's and it's technologically even more backwards. So, you know, when you look at the Russia-Ukrainian conflict, it's horrible to see what's happening in terms of the loss to human life. But in terms of the world economy, it doesn't account for much. You know, if you follow the actual market action, not the headlines, you get a much different story as always. Chris, more than 70% of Americans don't know what an NFT is. However, 23% of millennials in the U.S. collect NFTs. The most valuable NFT now is worth more than $91 million. I don't know if I quite understand non-fungible fungible tokens. Well, I think that NFT that's worth $91.8 million, rumor has is that's a digital picture of you at your high school prom, but I could be wrong. Well, then Chris is clearly selling at a discount. We can all agree on that. Well, if you believe that, then I've got a bunch of tulips I want to sell you. <laughs> we'll talk offline. All right, another great show. If you like our podcast, love our podcast, subscribe, give us a like, five-star rating. As always, stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. 
Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 